The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. We're beginning a new series today on this book of Job that I've entitled Making Sense of Suffering. There are 42 chapters in this book. And if you are aware of the pace at which we tend to go through books, you may be nervous thinking, we're going to be in this for years. <laughs> However, what I've decided is that we're going to actually cover this book in larger chunks, uh, especially when we get to the speeches made by Job's friends, so that we will get through the book before we hit the Advent season at the beginning of December. Um, as you may know, the story centers around a man named Job who experiences suffering at an almost unimaginable epic level. Basically, losing everything that has mattered to him in his life. And this suffering will send Job and his friends on a theological crisis as they wrestle with it and try to make sense of it. And maybe the truth is, some of you are not all that excited that this is the next series that we're covering, exploring the book of Job. Um, Some of you may be thinking, why are we going to spend so much time dwelling on such a depressing topic like suffering? And the truth is, for I even suspect many of you, you may be thinking, you know what, my life is going pretty well. And this whole topic of suffering seems pretty irrelevant to me. I don't really feel like I need it. It's interesting, but whenever I talk on suffering too, I always have a few people that kind of a little bit more in a taboo or voodoo kind of way say, oh no, whenever this happens, bad stuff starts happening in my life. And so now that we're on show, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, and I just, I don't like this at all. Um, Back when I was a seminary student at Trinity, John Piper did a chapel series to us uh, on suffering. And as he began that series at the Trinity Chapel, he gave us this sober charge as future pastors, seminarians, and he said this to us. He said, teach your people a theology of suffering before they experience major suffering in their life. And Piper urged us to do this Because what he said was, it is too difficult to sort out what you actually believe about suffering while you're going through that deep pain and loss. And when you don't see a higher purpose or meaning to our suffering, then the truth is that pain can very easily cause you to walk away from God, disappointed and disillusioned. And the sad truth is that in the many years that I've been pastoring, I've seen that truth play out repeatedly among church members who have abandoned their relationship with God when going through suffering because they believe that God had abandoned them in their pain. Thank you. And so I, I want to ask you this simple question as we start into the series. What is your theology of suffering? 
Or do you even have one? I worry that for many of us, our theology of suffering doesn't go any further than, well, I don't like it, and I don't want it, and I pray every day that God would spare me from it as much as possible. That's my theology of suffering. What I'm asking is when the storms of life hit, because they will, what will they reveal about the foundation on which you have built your life and your relationship with God? I hope that you will come away from this exploration of the book of Job with a deeper understanding of suffering and the role that it plays in our lives. I hope, in other words, that we will have a faith that can weather any storm that we will face in life. Today I'm going to look at chapter 1 of Job and use that as an introduction to everything we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. And I'm going to read starting from verses 1 to 5. And it says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we're told right off the bat that this man named Job comes from the land of Uz. We're not sure where Uz is, but it's clear it is not in Israel. In other words, Job was not an Israelite. In fact, he was alive, most historians believe, during a period known as the era of the patriarchs, like the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In other words, he was living in a time before the nation of Israel was even born yet. And yet, here's the interesting thing, is that we're told this man who was a pagan, living in a foreign land, worshipped the God of Israel. And not only that, but he was considered blameless and upright. He was a good man. He was a righteous man. And Job's righteousness will be affirmed over and over again throughout the book. It will never be called into question, his righteousness. Not even by God himself. Although, interestingly, his friends will question it. Now listen. This doesn't mean that Job was perfect. But it does indicate that he lived his life in such a way that God was pleased with him. I think we've all heard this phrase before. When good things happen, or when bad things happen to good people, right? We've all heard that phrase before, right? When bad things happen to good people. And here's the thing. When I was younger, I was told that this statement starts with a faulty premise. Because the truth is, the Bible tells us, there aren't any of us who are actually good. So there are no good people. And so, because none of us are good, none of us actually deserves or has the right to claim anything good from God. What we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is only bad things, and it should be a surprise when good things happen to us. Now, listen. 
in an ultimate sense of earning our salvation, that may be true. That none of us are good. But there are clearly people like Job, identified in Scripture by God himself, that God commends as actually good and righteous. In other words, I think what the Bible is saying about people like Job is they are living God-honoring lives that please Him. They are doing well in living the kind of life that honors Him. In other words, if God looks at Job, He would smile and say, I'm happy with Him. The life that He is living brings me joy. And yet, here's the thing. Is despite Job's righteous living, God still allows him to experience great suffering in his life. In other words, bad things do happen to good people. As many of you know, Betty and I were missionaries for five years in Africa, in Kenya. And from almost day one of arriving in this place called Katsawar in Kenya, I began to hear the stories of this man named Stanley Lindsay, who was a British missionary doctor who preceded me, served in Katsawar in the 1950s and 60s as a doctor, one of the pioneer missionaries to that place. And there would be stories of him mounting these metal medical boxes on his shoulders that weighed like 50 pounds and walking miles and miles for hours to remote villages, carrying a Bible in his hand, preaching the word of God, and then curing their diseases. There were stories of him physically combating other men from other tribes who would raid the Marikwet people in order to steal brides for themselves. And he would actually get into fistfights with these guys, rescuing these women. And I was shocked to find that this guy, Stanley Lindsay, was still alive at the time. And he was living retired in London. And so the next time that I passed through London, I visited him. And we eventually arranged for Stanley Lindsay to visit Kenya for two weeks. And during those two weeks, I in essence became a chauffeur, driving him from one city to the next, visiting the regions where he had been ministering as a missionary. And every place we went, huge crowds would gather when they heard that Stanley Lindsay was there. He was a legend. And everyone wanted to shake his hand. Sometimes villages where we were not intending to stop would create human roadblocks so that we couldn't pass, so that they could greet him. And I was blown away by the impact that this one man made to this entire tribe of America. And yet, here was the thing. A few years after that visit to Kenya, I found out that he was diagnosed with a very rare degenerative neurological disorder. And over the next several years, he would end up dying a very slow and painful death. And in getting to know Stanley Lindsay, I had actually gotten to know a couple of his children who are all grown-up adults now. And I got into a correspondence with one of his daughters. We wrote letters back and forth. 
And she would write these most heartbreaking letters to me, saying, why would God allow this to happen to someone like my father, who had so faithfully given up his life to serve God as a missionary all those years? Why couldn't God give him a quieter, more peaceful, painless death than this? In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? And the truth was, I had no simple answers to give her. There was actually one other detail I want to briefly highlight that we're told about Job in this opening paragraphs of the book. We're told that his children would regularly hold these feasts where they would invite each other. And whenever one of these parties took place, Job would always make sure that he made arrangements for their purification, offering sacrifices for each one of them out of fear that during that party, they may have inadvertently sinned against God and cursed him in their hearts. <laughs> kind of an interesting detail, isn't it? Now, we don't want to read too much into this, but could this tell us something about how Job viewed God? Because I think this is actually an important detail that's going to come into play in what happens next. John Walton, commenting on this, says, Could someone be accused of co-cursing God when they had no such intention at all? How sensitive will God be about categorizing what someone has said as co-cursing God? When we interact with someone whom we know to be sensitive, we will be careful about what we say. This is especially so if that person has some authority or power over us. We use the expression, quote, walking on eggshells to express how we seek to avoid offense with such people, perhaps a boss who is insecure. The question this example of Job's ritual fastidiousness raises is, what does it say about Job's Job's concept of God? What Walton is alluding to is that in the ancient Near East cultures of Job's time, The truth is that these pagan societies viewed their gods as often very immature and even petty. And so for them, there was always this fear that you might unintentionally offend one of the gods. And that's why things are not going well in your life. And so what they would constantly do, the safest thing to do, is to just constantly offer up little prayers. Offer up some kind of religious ritual, like a sacrifice just in case you have offended one of the gods and they're angry with you. And could it be that Job was influenced by the same way of thinking? Live righteously and God will show you favor. Do the wrong thing and you will experience his wrath. This leads us to the next part of the story in verses 6 to 11. One day the angel came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. I think this is one of the most confusing parts of the story of Job. Not the least of which, it seems really strange for God and Satan to be sitting down like best friends and having a chat about this human being on earth. Now, I don't have the time to go too deeply into it, but I think a lot of the confusion arises because in most English translations, it is translated, this character in the story is translated as Satan with a capital S. And so we naturally equate him with the Satan in the New Testament. And I think there is a very strong argument to be made that that is not the case. It could be, but I think it's more likely that this is not referring to the Satan of the New Testament. Why do I say that? Well, because when you actually look at the Hebrew, it doesn't say Satan, but it says the Satan with a definite article. And when it does that, it is almost never referring to a person's name, but a title. And so when you actually look at the word in Hebrew, Satan, what it literally translates to is one who challenges, or one who accuses, or one who is an adversary. And so what I think is probably a better way to understand this is that this person called the accuser or the challenger is some type of a spiritual being with unclear identity whose primary purpose in the story is to question the motivations of Job's righteousness. Thus Satan, the challenger who presents himself here, comes before God and he basically says this to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, what this Satan or what this challenger is revealing is that through Job, uh, that, that though Job is the one that's going to be tested, it is actually God who is being put on trial here. And what I mean by that is this. What this challenger or this Satan is saying to God is this. Listen, God. You are the one that has created this faulty system of punishments and rewards. And so you reward those who love you. Oh, isn't that convenient? And isn't that nice? And you punish those who are your enemies, who are against you. Well, in that system, how can you ever know the purity of someone's motives for living a righteous life? You can't. And so what the challenger says to God is, take away all the blessings you're giving to this God and watch what he does. I guarantee you, one day, he will curse you to your face. And walk away from you. In other words, isn't Job's entire motivation for righteous living his desire to maintain a life of blessing? 
And if that is not the case, God, strip them of every benefit you have ever given them. And watch how he responds. What this challenger is referencing is what is known as the principle of retribution. The righteous are blessed and will prosper, while the wicked are cursed and will suffer. And the truth is, the Bible affirms this principle over and over again in the scripture. Let's give you a couple examples. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but the, he blesses the home of the righteous. Proverbs 13, verse 25. The righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. Couldn't it be simpler? Righteous are blessed, wicked are cursed. At the heart of God's covenant with Israel, in fact, are these promises of blessing and these warnings of curses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16 to 19. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth and witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. This is the justice of God. The wicked are punished and suffer while the righteous experience God's favor and blessing. But here is the problem. We don't experience life like this, do we? What if we don't experience the good life as a result of our righteousness? Then what is the point of it all? This is the difficult and painful journey that Job must embark on through his suffering. Let's read on in verses 12 to 19. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. They are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
Remember what we said earlier about the piety of Job. And in that framework, what must he have been thinking in that moment? Oh no. One of them must have cursed God inadvertently. And I didn't even have a chance to offer a sacrifice on their behalf. And look what happened to them. Job knew a life of blessing. But he will now be forced into an extended season of pain and loss. And the question is, how did Job respond? Well, at least initially, pretty well, pretty well. In verses 20 to 22, as we finish off this chapter. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked, I came from my mother's womb. And naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And it would have been wonderful if this is how the story ended. And we can all use this to bludgeon Christians and say, you should be more like Job when you suffer. But the truth is, this is Job in anticipation of God eventually coming to his rescue and restoring him. But when that relief does not come and the pain is unrelenting, Job changes from this posture of quiet acceptance and surrender into one of frustration and complaint and even despair. As we will see later on, he will go as far as to say, I curse the day that I was born. In other words, what he was saying was, in what I am experiencing in life, non-existence would be a better option than existence under these conditions. And underneath it all will be Job's bedrock claim to his innocence. That he has lived a righteous life. And he doesn't deserve the bad things that are happening to him. He will maintain his righteousness to the bitter end, almost. Listen. When we experience suffering, we always want to know the why question, don't we? Why am I going through this? What is the reason, in other words, or the cause of my suffering? Or another way we could put it is, who is to blame for this? Did I do anything to bring this on myself? Some of you may know um, that our family just recently moved from Vernon Hills to Arlington Heights. Just a couple weeks ago. And what had happened was, on our moving day two weeks ago, uh, Betty and I actually both came down with COVID, okay? Uh, and I know some of you are Listen, we're, it was two weeks ago, okay? So according to CDC guidelines, it's, I think it's okay, all right? Um, but the timing 
could not have been worse. We were both totally laid out with fever and chills and body aches while we were trying to unpack and get the house settled in. And the timing of our move with the timing of COVID seems way too coincidental. And here's the truth, is I found my mind drifting to questions like, did we do something wrong here? Was God not happy with the house that we had bought? This was the principle of retribution working in my own heart. What might we have done to deserve this and bring this on ourselves? And I want to ask you this. When it comes to your relationship with God, for some of you, does it always feel like you're walking on eggshells? Worrying that you have done something to offend his sensitivities and that you have somehow triggered his anger toward you? Are you always offering little prayers of repentance or other acts of devotion to try to cancel out all the bad stuff that you may have intentionally or even inadvertently done against him? And now you're afraid you're going to suffer his wrath and his anger. Here's the thing. Toward the end of the book, when God finally enters the conversation, he will have a lot to say to Job and his friends. But what he will not do is offer any kind of explanation about causation to Job's suffering. In particular, he will make no reference to this retribution principle, connecting the dots between what Job has done and why he is suffering. Listen, the principle of retribution is a valid one. But what we are going to learn from our study of the book of Job is that it is not adequate to explain the full complexity of how God governs his world. A world in which there will be a legitimate place for suffering that doesn't always center on punishment and reward. What I want to say is that Job is seeking justice from God. But God tells him that what he really needs is wisdom. Not to understand the cause of his suffering, but its purpose in his life. Because Job is constantly making the plea to God, I am innocent, I am innocent. I have done nothing wrong despite the accusations of all of my friends. And if only God were here to be my judge, I can make my case before him. And God says, it is not about that. What you need to learn, Job, is wisdom to understand why I have allowed this in your life. <coughs> this past week, I feel like I was an employee at TaskRabbit because I have assembled so much furniture. Um, and the truth is, over my lifetime, I think I must have assembled over 100 pieces of furniture. I always tell Ben, why can't we just buy fully assembled furniture once in my life, you know? Why is everything in a box when we order it? So I had to build this cabinet thing. And when I opened it, it had a gazillion pieces to it. But I had a certain swagger 
I had built a hundred of these things. So I thought, piece of cake, no problem. The problem, though, were that these instructions were horrible. Each step had like 50 pieces with arrows drawing it. Drawing. It looked like some NASA drawing for the next uh, space rocket. The other problem was that the image quality was so poor and the images were so tiny that half the time you couldn't figure out how to orient the piece when you were assembling it. So I got 90% done building this thing and I realized I put one piece upside down, a vital piece. And just my spirit sank. And I literally had to disassemble the entire thing practically. Because that piece was so inaccessible. And I was cursing under my breath as I basically built this thing for a second time. And then I got to the next step and I realized I forgot to put a piece that was in this nook that was again vital to the integrity of this entire thing. And so for the second time I disassembled the entire thing and I reassembled it. And you're not going to believe this. But then I got to the next step, and there was yet another tiny piece that I had missed like seven steps earlier. And so for the third time, I disassembled this thing. And by this point, I was so angry that I was ready to take this thing and chuck it against the wall and just smash it to pieces. I mean, I'm saying that lightly. But I really wanted to do that in that. I was, I was three hours into this project, you know? And I was going crazy. And here was the thing was, while I was going through that, I was thinking this is a, my, my pastor mind came on. And I was thinking, I'm sure there's a life lesson in this. <laughs> but also the truth was, I was in no mood to learn anything in that moment. And here's the thing, is I love to learn. I'm an awesome learner. (laughs) I love learning. I love reading books to expand my mind on things from theology to quantum mechanics. You may be shocked at the kind of books I read, okay? I love watching YouTube videos to improve my pickleball game or to learn a new cooking technique from a French chef. But here's also what I know about myself, is when I'm going through difficulty or experiencing pain, the last thing I am interested in is learning something from it. I'm actually much more like a cornered animal that only wants to escape the pain. And here's the truth, is that struggle to assemble that furniture is pretty trivial as far as hardships go, isn't it? Compared to some of the suffering that you have gone through in your life. I think regardless of the degree of suffering and difficulty, I think in those moments, we all want just for that struggle to be over, for the pain to end. But what God tells Job is that one of the most important purposes of suffering is to teach us wisdom and grow our character. 
And this is going to be one of the difficult lessons that suffering must teach us, that Job must learn and we must learn. And we can enter into that journey of learning and growing because we follow a God who has gone through that suffering himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I want to say this as we wrap up the first message in this book of Job. One of the tensions that I think you're going to feel throughout the series is that there's always a desire for every preacher to wrap every message in a nice, neat little bow and to have a little story at the end that makes you all feel good and leave the sanctuary and leave church just feeling a little better about yourself and about God and I'm going to say this right now, off the bat as we start this series, is I'm not going to always do that at the end of every one of these messages. Try to tie it up in a neat little bow with a little lesson for the week. Because I don't think the book of Job actually does that. It's going to leave chapter after chapter after chapter you in this suspended tension of, man, I just don't get this. I don't understand what's happening here. And I think that's an important part of the growth of suffering, is to not try to resolve that tension so immediately, so quickly, with a pat answer like, well, Jesus, and there you go, it's all solved. Because even Jesus himself would have to go through this long, disorienting road of suffering and learn from it himself. And he models for us what that patient endurance looks like to surrender ourselves by faith to what God is going to allow to happen in our lives, to say, I will follow no matter what. And there is a very long journey to get to that place. Job will start in a really good place of just saying, God be praised. Let me keep my eyes fixed on him. But there's going to be a noisy joke that's going to come in a little bit that cries bloody murder and says, I curse the day that I was born. And that noisy joke is important for us too because it shows us what authentic faith looks like. That the journey into finding our trust in God is not an easy one. And it can often take some great wrestling with God that says, God, I just don't understand your ways. It is Jesus standing and then bowing and then crumpled in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, is there not another way, Father? Must I go to the cross? I don't know what kind of suffering you've been through in your life. But maybe you've been through some of that journey yourself to say, what are you doing, God? Do you even care? Do you even hear any of my prayers? Because I just feel like I am just praying to nothing. Just dead space. And my prayers are bouncing off my ceiling and falling to the floor. God, help me to gain a heart of wisdom and to understand what you are trying to teach me through this path of suffering. Would you just pray in your heart for just a moment and we're going to come to the Lord's table here and take communion together. But let's just spend a moment before God in prayer right now.
we come to the table, we are reminded that we worship a God that chose not to be separated from our pain and our suffering, but to enter into it in the most personal way imaginable by sending His one and only Son to die on a cross on our behalf. And He experientially knows our pain in a way that we could not believe when He went through a life of suffering that was capped off by a crucifixion on a Roman cross. And what Jesus says is that He did this all for us out of His love for us. And by faith, we receive that gift of the cross that cleanses us from all of our sins and give us confidence to approach the throne of grace, to know that whenever we come to Him, we are always loved by Him and accepted by Him. And it is in that confidence that we worship Him even in this moment. And so I want to invite you to come and first take from this bread that represents His broken body for us. And then secondly, to take from this cup that represents His blood shed for us as we do it in the name of Jesus. Let's take it together as a church family. so many ways, God, you remain a mystery to us. It is so hard to understand your ways. How can we fathom the depths of who you are? And yet, in that unknowing, you offer to us the gift of your Son to show us that whatever we may think of you, in the face of the cross of Jesus Christ, our conclusion cannot be that you do not care that you do not love. Because by giving us your son on the cross, what you have shown us is that there is nothing that you would withhold from us for our good because of your love for us. And yet we wonder why is it then that we suffer and go through the things that we do in this life. Grant to us a heart of wisdom and understanding to accept by faith what we cannot reconcile through our rational minds. To know that you are a God that is always for us because of Christ and his reconciling work. For it is in his name we pray.